Well, if we're, um, we're good to go, we're good to stay. Um, we're going to read together from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're finishing off 1 Thessalonians uh, today. Uh, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 from verse 12 to verse 28. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 28. Muttering in the front row here, it's a shocking behaviour. <laughs> But being deaf to the admonition is never. <laughs> you're right, girls. You're sorted. <laughs> deaf. So one Thessalonians five, verse twelve. Irene. <laughs> That's the New Testament, and. Uh, <laughs> Good. Okay. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work, and live in peace with each other. And we ask you, brothers and si- we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that our hearts would be receptive to your word because our hearts are just so really keen and desperate to do your will and please you. So we pray you would give us a readiness to do what your word says and to delight in obedience to you. Thank you that you are here, that your spirit is a true teacher. We acknowledge that whatever side of the music stand we're on, we all need your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, one of the, the things that I've mentioned once or twice is that the way that our text in the Bible, as you're reading it, is carved up into chapters and headings, um, is not there in the original. So, if you were to take the tipex of truth and knock out the chapter change to verse 5, and knock out the heading, uh, the day of the Lord there, and then tipex out uh, final instructions and benediction, or whatever it is you've got at the beginning of verse 12, then you'd be doing yourself a service. Because um, there is no great break in Paul's thinking 
um, between what is written about Christ's return and living as children of the day and being ready for it and what he writes here. So to get that, I want you to read with me uh, from, let's take it, in fact, from the beginning of chapter 5. Um, so chapter 5, verse 1. He's talking about the day on which Christ returns, the day of the Lord. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having on the breastplate of faith, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect. So it just goes straight on in the Greek. There's no break there. Because what Paul is writing about here to the fellowship in Thessalonica is what it's going to look like for them on the ground, so to speak, to live as children of day. So to live in a way that anticipates Christ's return. So I had the, um, the, 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 the bin, the freely bin, and you remember we were talking about living round, round the rim, round the edge. Always as if Christ might return. So you're always, you're always living in, in readiness for Christ's return, rather than thinking, oh, it hasn't happened yet, so it's never going to happen. Or thinking, well, you know, I'm going to crack on till I'm 90-odd, so that's all right. Um, so it's always living around the edge in that readiness. That's what it means to be children of day. Not caught out, not surprised by Jesus' return. Um, not embarrassed by him coming back. Um, so what that means for the fellowship in, um, in Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki, um, is what Paul is spelling out now. So this is what, if, if you want to live in readiness for Jesus coming back, if you want to live on the edge, if you want to live in a way that you're not going to find yourself embarrassed if Jesus comes back and ashamed of, of, of conduct and the way you're going on, then this is how to do it. So this is really instructions for living in anticipation of Jesus' return. This is how to live as children of the day rather than as children of the darkness or the night. So when Paul is writing um, all this, he, he begins with how to relate to your elders and pastors. So it's dead easy for me to do this since I'm neither an elder nor a pastor. So it's, it's, it's easier for me to say these things than it might be in some situations anyway for um, elders and pastors. Um, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, 
uh, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So 12 and 13 are as you, as you um, live as children of day, then relate to those who, whom the Lord has appointed in leadership within the church in a way that you're not going to find embarrassing when Jesus comes back, who's their boss. Um, and there are uh, several ways to do this that Paul writes about in 12 and 13. So first of all, uh, acknowledge, or a better translation is respect, uh, as we've got in the ESV. Uh, respect them. So what, what do you do with respect? You uh, take real cognizance. If you respect something, it's a little bit different from highest regard thing, although we sometimes use the phrase interchangeably, but if you respect something, you take notice of it, you take cognizance of it, and you let it change the way you think. So we respect the speed limit on a road. Not by thinking, oh wow, what a great speed limit. I love that speed limit, don't you? Um, not by doing that, but by actually doing what it says. So you notice it, you take cognizance of it, and you behave accordingly. Next phrase is that high regard thing. Um, esteem them very highly, it says in the ESV. Hold them in the highest regard. Um, which is alien to some people's way of thinking. So, um, all present company accepted. But in some churches, or with some people, that is not how they by default regard a pastor or elders amongst them. The default position is suspicion. Um, and I have encountered uh, many situations where there are those either with the eldership with respect to an ordained minister, or amongst the members with respect to elders and pastors, um, almost as if the godly thing to do is to clip their wings, hold them back, don't let them get too much power, suspect that they're always looking for you know, an easy ride but lots of position. It's just that suspicion thing, that if you actually listen to them, the church is going to go off the rails. Or that a congregation is to be so congregation-led that those who are appointed as elders can never get on with anything. So it's always sort of pull them back, pull them back. You know, don't let them get carried away with themselves. All that kind of thing. And that, that is given us in, in the pretense of being godly, which it isn't. Because God appoints leaders to do what? So if you've got 150 members in a church, or 350 or whatever, 350 people can't lead 350 people. That's just not going to work. So if God appoints leaders, then it... It, it's him who's saying, hold them in high regard. Now, they're not to be held in high regard just because of their position. Paul here is saying, hold them in the highest regard, in love, and there are reasons. First is that word work or labor in verse 12. It, it really means work hard, graft, toil. And then um, we've got that other work, uh, the other word, um, their work in verse 13, uh, in love because of their work. 
And again, it's, it's, it's a word which is very expressive in the original. Um, work done is measured by a change that takes place. And you don't change things in a, in, in a, in a fellowship. You don't get a fellowship to change things in a community without just plain hard work. You have to give of yourself. So whether it's the first word, labor, toil, graft, or the second one, just plain old work, what Paul is pointing out is that those whom God has put as leaders in a fellowship are giving and giving and giving. Uh, so in the church in Thessalonica, as in all the other churches, those who were in leadership were usually, not always, but usually, they had a day job as well. So what they were doing for the church was above and beyond. So it wasn't put your feet up and watch the telly in the evening. It was go to a meeting. Obviously, you know, they didn't have telly in Thessalonica, but you know what I mean. Put your, put your feet up and watch a chariot race or something. Um, it was, you go out and you, other people might think, oh, I can't be bothered going out tonight, so they wouldn't. But those in leadership can't do that. So they will make the extra effort, go the extra mile. Um... So the, the, the problem is that if you're not in that position, most of the time you haven't a clue how much work it involves and how hard it is. And, it's, and it isn't, that is necessarily the case because no one person sees what pastors and elders are doing for each person. So I reckon when I was um, at Gilk, my average working week was about 65 hours a week. But I was on call all the time, even when I was on holiday. So if, 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 if there was a death in the congregation, that would follow me to wherever I was on holiday. You, you never, ever are, like, absent. Um, and even, even when you let everybody know that, you know, well, Saturday's my day off. You get those phone calls who say, I know it's your day off, but, I, <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but out, um, yeah, brother, <laughs> in love in the Lord, you know, um, now you, you handle that wisely, you say, well, uh, can it wait until tomorrow, because you'll see me at church in the morning, won't you, because you'll be there, oh, yeah, um, you handle it wisely. But you're just, your whole disposition is giving. Burnout is common amongst ministers, not because it's their fault, but because they just give and give and give. And if you've got a congregation of 100 people, you've got 100 people who will, by and large, take and take and take. And, and will feel that their, their pastor is there for them. So the pastor has to respond to a need simply by virtue of it being perceived as a need by me. So you're just slogging it. You're working hard. It is graft. It is toil. And it has a knock-on for your family. Um, so the... Paul is saying before God, look, if you're going to live as children of day, if you're not going to be embarrassed when the great shepherd of the sheep comes back, watch how you regard the under-shepherds. 
respect them, hold them in highest regard in love. And then that little bit at the end of verse 13, live in peace with each other, is part and parcel of the attitude towards relating to the minister, the pastor, the elders. Live in peace with each other. Or live in harmony with one another is perhaps um, the better way to translate it. So you think of a choir. If you're singing in a choir, then the thing that you're not supposed to do is let everybody hear your voice. Because you've got to hear everyone's voice together. So in a choir, there's got to be no kind of dominant voice wanting to be heard above the others, wanting to sing louder or whatever than everybody else. If you're in a choir, you, you sing well by listening to how everybody else is doing and matching the tone. If you're singing in a choir, it's your job to follow the conductor as well as listening to everybody else and, and moderating hearing your own voice. So you've got to be very self-aware as well as being aware of how everybody else is singing. And if you're singing in a choir, you've got to be following like everybody else, the same conductor. You don't follow them to your side because that bass is going to come in too early and that bass is going to sing the first part of Mozart's Requiem too fast or too loud. You follow the conductor. And if everybody does that, you're okay. So it's, it's that sort of picture that Paul is painting. Transfer the imagery into, in, into parenting. Parenting each child is one thing, but parenting all the kids when they are fighting with each other is like a nightmare. So in order to relate well to those who are over us in the Lord and whose work it is to admonish us, to keep us right, you know, the shepherd's rod, the, the thin one with the curvy bit that he taps the sheep with so they go in the right direction and get some moving and all that kind of thing. The, the right way to respond is with respect, with loving esteem and living in harmony with each other. So that's how you relate to those in the church who are given leadership responsibilities. Second part of, of, of this, this, this living as children of light, which means doing good for one another, um, encouraging one another, building one another up just as you are doing, verse 11 that leads into it. Um, the second part is how you deal with, um, with people who are not strong in the fellowship. Um, every fellowship has folk who are not at the forefront, they're not confident, um, they're not, they haven't got large physical capacity for stuff. Um, they're not spiritually vibrant all the time, like who is anyway. But you've got a mixture of people in the, uh, in, in the fellowship. And so we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Admonish the idle. Um, there are people who are idle in churches. That may shock you. It may not. But there are people who are idle in churches. That doesn't mean they're necessarily quiet, because some of the ones who do most of this are least likely to muck in and help. 
the, the word that Paul is using there for idle um, has, has this idea about not taking responsibility. So we might use the phrase a shirker, right? So, which sounds like some, someone from a tribe in Afghanistan or something, or he's a shirker. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it just struck me. I thought that was a, that was a beautiful thought. Um, <laughs> people with, oh, we might say people with sloppy shoulders. You know, the responsibility just falls off them and somebody else has got to pick it up. And, and Paul says, well, admonish those people, warn them, put them right. It is not loving to ignore that. Why? Because that person or persons or those group of people in the church who are maybe mo most yakky, but actually never deliver the goods and don't take responsibility for stuff, always think, assume it's got to be somebody else who's doing it and probably complain when it isn't done, those people have to be as ready for Christ's return as anybody else in the fellowship. The same living on the edge thing, which is a fellowship thing, it's a collective thing, applies to them. So, actually, if, if you are the kind of person who takes responsibility, then it is a responsibility to warn them and admonish them, to put them right. And that's not comfortable. We don't do that kind of thing in Britain. That's not a very British thing to do. Well, at that point, you're going to say, well, stuff being British, this is Christian. If the two are at odds, you go for what's Christian. And it is Christian to say to somebody, you don't have to do it forcefully, you don't have to actually do it with a bit of spiritual kneecapping, but you know, kind of a pastoral whack. But you need to admonish them and say, look, you know, come and give us a hand here. Or you're always just standing around. Or, yeah, okay, we hear what you're saying, but can you just give us a hand shifting all this stuff that needs to be done? You know, I know you're saying a lot, but your name isn't on a single rotor. Is there a problem? So warn those who are idle and disruptive in the NIV or um, admonish the idle. Second, make sure that nobody pays back wrong or no, got, um, encourage the disheartened. Um, do you know anybody who's a believer who just seems very easily discouraged? Uh, the glass is always half empty. In fact, it may be almost empty. And they'll just always see the negative side of something. And they're about as upbeat as a dead slug. It's just, mm. So they lose heart quickly. You know, if you get a Sunday, just think about this coming summer. If we get a Sunday where there's only six adults left after the kids have gone out, and they all know each other anyway, because <laughs> that's like two sets of parents. Um, Oh, you know, off, disaster, not working. You know, it's the summer, it's going to take a dip. You know, other people's weeks will be on holiday, you'll be away next week. You know, don't get disheartened. It's that, some people are so quick to be discouraged. It's like they're looking for discouragement. And 
the wind goes out of their sails. So what do you do? You encourage them. You don't whack them for being negative. Save the whacking for the idle. Encourage them. Put courage into. That's what courage, that encourage means. Put courage into somebody. And then help the weak. Um, those, uh, those who just don't have the capacity, uh, the endurance, the perseverance, the dogginess, or whatever. And they'll quickly get tired of a thing. Some people have a lot of capacity and a lot of stamina. Some people have a lot of perseverance because they are constitutionally just stronger. Doesn't mean that mean they're necessarily holier, but they're constitutionally stronger. Well, you, you help them. You get alongside, put your arm around them, help them, figuratively speaking. And then be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But here it comes again. Always strive to do what is good for each other. To do one another good. And everybody else. That's the non-Christians outside the church in Thessalonica as well. So that even though we acknowledge that idleness, disheartened attitudes and weakness and frustration, people being frustrated, are common in church life. And, and you know, we have to acknowledge that. It's got to be a safe place to be idle because somebody will pick you up on it lovingly. And it's got to be a safe place to be glass half empty because people will encourage you. It's got to be a safe place to be weak because people will lend you their strength. It's got to be safe, a safe place to, to arrive grumpy one afternoon or one morning because you're not going to get shunned for it. But people will be patient with you. So that's church as a safe place, not as a place which constantly affirms every behaviour, because every behaviour by Christians doesn't, shouldn't be affirmed. You know, sometimes we actually need to kick up the pants in that divinely appointed place. But it should be a safe place even for that. So ages ago, uh, Ken Medema wrote a song, uh, and it goes like this. If this is not a place where tears are understood, then where shall I go to cry? And if this is not a place where my spirit can take wings, then where shall I go to fly? Just think of that. Think of Kintor. Where would you go in this royal borough for your tears to be understood and where your spirit can take wings? Where would you go? Would you go to the square? I don't think so. Would you go to a parents' meeting at school? Perhaps not, for these things. Where, where else would you go? I don't need another place for trying to impress you with just how good and virtuous I am. I don't need another place for always being on top of things. Everybody knows that it's a sham. I don't need another place for always wearing smiles, even when it's not the way I feel. I don't need another place to mouth the same old platitudes. Everyone knows that it's not real. 
So if this is not a place where my questions can be asked, then where shall I go to seek? And if this is not a place where my heart cry can be heard, where, tell me, shall I go to speak? If this is not a place where tears are understood, where shall I go? Where shall I go to fly? And so we fulfill the law of love. We rejoice always, pray continually, we give thanks in all circumstances. We don't quench the spirit. Isn't it, a, isn't it a phenomenal thing? That the spirit who brooded over the waters and through whom creation happened, the spirit who can just breathe life into dead souls, the spirit who is unstoppable, can be quenched by any of us. The spirit who is a fellowship's life can be quenched by us. Best picture of that, I, I would have done it, but probably brought me some health and safety or something in the community hall. Um, you get a candle and you light it. That flame there is the spirit. And you just then put a bell jar over it. And what happens to the flame after a few seconds? It comes out. You quenched it. Didn't do anything dramatic, did you? You just starved it of oxygen. Well, it's like quenching a flame. Incredibly and surprisingly easily done. So don't quench your spirit. If, if somebody has prophecy, don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them. Because God might be speaking. And hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. So what we've got here is the picture of a life that is lived by a fellowship. When they're together and when they're, and they're ones and twos and when we're all over the place, geographically I mean, or even spiritually, that means that we'd be ready for Jesus to return. So is it a perfect church? No. It's a church where people need admonishing. It's a church where people need leaders or they'd be wandering off like sheep all over the place. Never have any coherence nor, nor direction. It's a church where the people who are disheartened and weak. It's a church where there are people who annoy the socks off you. In love. It's a church full of ordinary human beings but who are living in readiness for Christ's return. And then 23, Paul is, is now properly kind of rounding off uh, 12 through 9 through 22, we're a continuation of what's gone before, as we've been saying. 23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So what is, what is Paul doing here? Um, Paul is asking God to do what God has promised to do. And he's effectively saying may God make you what he has called you to be. That little verse there, verse 24, um, which which somebody pointed out to me when I was quite a young Christian, um, and quite young, full stop, or younger, uh, whichever way you look at it. Um, 
the one who calls, he who calls you is faithful and he will do it, um, has, has been, word of personal testimony here, has been a, a bedrock approach to life in all its challenges. And in, when I have been the challenge, you know, not, not necessarily when other people's circumstances, but when I have been the challenge, I think, oh Lord, will I ever get it right? God who calls you is faithful and he will do it. When Paul was writing the church in Philippi, he, he encouraged them with these words, God will bring to completion every good work that he has begun in you. God will bring it to completion. So when we get frustrated with ourselves and with one another at our lack of progress or falling into the same old sin again or finding ourselves troubled in our hearts instead of having peace then what we, what we don't do is either on the one hand beat ourselves up as the devil will do that God won't beat you up, the devil will um, all those, those invasive words that have come from different parts of our lives and different people in our lives Either that, we don't, we don't beat ourselves up, not kind of self-flagellation in Protestantism. Um, or we will try and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We'll say, try harder, try harder, try harder. But saying to ourselves or to somebody else, try harder, is, 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 is like... Standing over a bird with a broken wing and saying, flap harder. I won't get it to fly. Remember that Jesus binds up the brokenhearted. Remember that he doesn't quench the smoking flax. Jesus very gently fans it back into flame. Remember that when Jesus says to us to be patient with one another, all he's asking us to do is be like he is all the time with us. Just immensely, lovingly patient. He has called you. He is faithful. He will get you there. And what a relief, my hope for getting to heaven is not with me. He who began a good work in me he will bring it to completion. I'm not passive in that process. I'm a partner in that process. But he's the one who makes it happen. Um, a guy that I knew um, respected enormously, Dennis Lennon, who was um, missionary with OMF in Thailand and uh, ended up being the rector of St. Thomas's Costorfen in Edinburgh and then went down to be the advisor in evangelism of the Diocese of Chester, I think it was in Sheffield, uh, where Dennis ended up. And a brilliant writer and hilarious um, to boot. Um, Dennis had this little picture of, of this kind of thing. He said, it's like a, a, a little girl standing up on the stage at Covent Garden before this vast and knowledgeable audience and trying to sing and her voice is all over the place. And, all that. and then someone like a Kiriti or walks on the stage and just picks up the melody that the little girl is trying and just sings it with her. And lo and behold, after a few seconds, there is a genuine duet happening. And her voice, the little girl's voice, gains strength and miraculously she starts to sing in tune. And it's a duet. And at the end, the audience are rapturous. 
in their applause. And that's the picture of the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Bungs you out there on the stage before this vast and knowledgeable audience and you're croaking your way to oblivion. And it's awful. And he's just, and you think, oh no, he's alongside. And what he does picks up what you're trying to do. His strength picks up your tiny strength. And it's a duet. And at the end of the day, all the angels and archangels and all the demons of hell will be rapturous in their admiration and applause. And you will be the living evidence of how great God is. Wonderful, isn't it? That's our God. What other kind of God would you want? Every other God is a tyrant. And then the final instructions, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss, or as we do over here, we're beginning to do the hugging now, of course, in, in, in Britain. Um, we do, men do it badly. Um, but by and large it's well meant um, there are some men that you wouldn't hug if you're another man uh, you, just, uh, you just have to gauge that and just get a look on their face and all the rest of it and, uh, we've all done the most embarrassing failures of hugs but anyway, greet all is way better than trying to kiss, I tell you <laughs> just don't go there, you know um. and then he ends as he began 1 Thessalonians began with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 Thessalonians ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let grace bookend your day. Grace at the start of the day. Grace at the end of the day. Let grace bookend your summer. Let grace be the bookend of some work or some service that you're undertaking for God. That demerited love of God, irrevocable, unconditional, faithful, amazing. Let that be the start and the end of all you do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word which keeps us right and which keeps us on the path that Jesus treads. And we know, Lord, that there isn't a thing we've read through 1 Thessalonians which doesn't in some way or another remind us of Jesus. We pray that as we seek to obey your word, seek to do it, then we might know your help. Thank you, Lord, that whether we're thinking about our own individual walk or the walk that we share together as a fellowship, whether we're thinking about the needs that we and others have, we thank you that you are faithful and you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen.